If you don't know, you're about to know right now. You're about to learn. That's the case, huh? You feel me, them? I'm Quindell Evans. And you're tuned into the Blue Poet Tree Podcast. That's three words. The word blue, the word poet, the word tree. Blue Poet Tree Podcast. You feel me? On this podcast, we speak about the habits that it takes to create a successful life and the habits that it takes to overcome and break through a successful life. One of those habits that it takes to create a successful life is reading. You know, reading daily is good for the mind, you feel me? So today, I'm going to read with you How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's a really impactful read, so let's get right in there. I'm going to read with you chapter 2. And this is called The Big Secret of Dealing with People. Let's go. Alright. So, it begins by saying there's only one way under high heaven to get anybody to do anything. Did you ever stop to think of that? Yes, just one way. And that is by making another person want to do it. Remember, there is no other way. Of course you can make someone want to give you his watch by sticking a revolver in his ribs. You can make your employees give you cooperation and, until your back is turned by threatening to fire them. You can make a child do what you want it to do by a whip or a threat. But these crude methods have sharply undesirable repercussions. The only way I can get you to do anything is by giving you what you want. Only way I can get you to do anything is by giving you what you want. What do you want? Sigmund Freud said that everything you and I do springs from two motives. The sex urge and the desire to be great. Sigmund Freud said that everything you and I do springs from two motives. The sex urge and the desire to be great. John Dewey, one of America's most profound philosophers, phrased it a bit differently. Dr. Dewey said, the deepest urge in human nature is the desire to be important. Remember that phrase, the desire to be important. It is significant. You're going to hear a lot about it in this book. What do you want? Not many things, but the few things that you do wish you crave with an insistence that will not be denied. Some of the things most people want include health, and the preservation of life, food, sleep, money and the things money will buy, life in the hereafter, sexual gratification, the well-being of our children, a feeling of importance. Almost all these wants are usually gratified, all except one. But there is one longing, almost as deep, almost as imperious in the desire for food and sleep almost as imperious as the desire for food and sleep, which is seldom gratified. It is what Freud calls the desire to be great. It is what Dewey calls the desire to be important. Lincoln once began a letter saying, everybody likes a compliment. William James said, the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. He didn't, mind, he didn't speak, mind you, of the wish or desire or the longing to be appreciated. To be appreciated. He said the craving to be appreciated. 
Here is annoying and unfaltering human hunger, and the rare individual who honestly satisfies this heart hunger will hold people in the palms of his or her hand, and even an undertaker will, will be sorry when he dies. You feel me? So this person who masters how to make people feel appreciated, how to make people feel important, how to make people feel great, can 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 be the most, you know, highly celebrated person, you feel me? That is how you win friends and influence people. That is how you handle people, by giving them what they want. In order to make them do what you want, you give them what they want. You have to make them want to do what you want to do. You feel me? The desire for a feeling of importance is one of the chief distinguishing differences between mankind and the animals. To illustrate, when I was a farm boy out in Missouri, my father bred fine Duroc Jersey hogs and pedigreed white-faced cattle. We used to exhibit our hogs and white-faced cattle at the country fairs and livestock shows throughout the Middle West. We won first prizes by the score. My father pinned his blue ribbons on a sheet of white muslin, and when friends and visitors came to the house, he would get out the long sheet of muslin. He would hold one end, and I would hold the other while he exhibited the blue ribbons. The hogs didn't care about the ribbons that they won, but father did. These prizes gave him a feeling of importance. If our ancestors hadn't had this flaming urge for a feeling of importance, civilization would have been impossible. Without it, we should have been just about like animals. Without this feeling of importance, we would be just like animals. It was this desire for a feeling of importance that led an uneducated, poverty-stricken grocery clerk to study some law books he found in the bottom of a barrel of household plunder that he had bought for 50 cents. You have probably heard about this grocery clerk. His name was Lincoln. It was, this, it was this desire for a feeling of importance that inspired Dickens to write his immortal novels. This desire inspired Sir Christopher Wren to design his symphonies in stone. This desire made Rockefeller amass millions of wealth, amass millions that he never spent. And this same desire made the richest family in your town build a household far too large for its requirements. This desire makes you want to wear the latest style, drive the latest cars, and talk about your brilliant children. It is this desire that lures many boys and girls into joining gangs and engaging in criminal activities. The average young criminal, according to E.P. Mulrooney, one-time police commissioner of New York, the average, he says the average young criminal is filled with ego and his first request after arrest it's for those lurid newspapers that make him out a hero. This disagreeable prospect of serving time seems remote so long as he can gloat over his likeness, sharing space with pictures of sports figures, movie and TV stars and politicians. I work in the, in the juvenile center, in the correctional facilities, you know, such as Rikers Island. And, you know, oftentimes if you do, you know, ask or just, if the the nature of the crime that the 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 person who I'm working with committed, if if that ever comes up in conversation, a lot of times they do be like, "You didn't see it on the news? I was in a newspaper, or you know, like I was on Citizens app, or like they'll like not like boast, but they'll be 
Kind of like that's, like, I don't know, like, as if that's not what they did it for, but as if they get something from it. Like, they get something from knowing that their, their crime was on the news and the newspapers and, you know, people had access to, to hear about it. So I do hear that. So if you tell me you get your, if you tell me how you get your feeling of importance, I'll tell you who you are. I'll tell you what you are. That determines your character. That is the most significant thing about you. What makes you feel important. For example, John D. Rockefeller got his feeling of importance by giving money to erect a modern hospital in, in Peking, China to care for millions of poor people whom he had never seen and would never see. Dillinger, on the other hand, got his feeling of importance by being a bandit, a bank robber, and killer. When the FBI agents were hunting him, he dashed into a farmhouse of Minnesota and said, I'm Dillinger. He was proud of the fact that he was a public enemy, that he was public enemy number one. I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm Dillinger, he said. Yes, the one significant difference between Dillinger and Rockefeller is how they got their feeling of importance. History sparkles with amusing examples of famous people struggling for a feeling of importance. Even George Washington wanted to be called his mightiness, the president of the United States. And Columbus pleaded for the title Admiral of the Ocean and Vis Viceroy of India. Catherine the Great refused to open letters that were not addressed to her imperial majesty. And Mrs. Lincoln in the White House turned, Mrs. Lincoln in the White House turned upon Mrs. Grant like a tigress and shouted, how dare you be seated in my presence until I invite you. Our millionaires helped finance Admiral Byrd's expedition to the Antarctic in 1928 with the understanding that ranges of icy mountains will be named after them. And Victor Hugo aspired to have nothing less than the city of Paris renamed in his honor. Even Shakespeare, mightiest of the mighty, tried to add luster to his name by procuring a coat of arms for his family. People sometimes became invalids in order to win sympathy and attention and get a feeling of importance. For example, take Mrs. McKinley. She got a feeling of importance by forcing her husband, the President of the United States, to neglect important affairs of state while he reclined on the bed beside her for hours at a time, his, his arm about her soothing her to sleep. She fed her knowing desire for attention by insisting that he remain with her while she was having her teeth fixed, and once created a stormy scene when he had to leave her alone with the dentist while he kept an, import, an, an appointment with John Hay, his Secretary of State. The writer Mary Roberts Reinhardt once told me of a bright, vigorous young woman who became an invalid in order to get a feeling of importance. One day, said Mrs. Reinhardt, this woman had been obliged to face something her age, perhaps. The lonely years were stretching ahead and there was little left for her to anticipate. She took to her bed and for 10 years, her old mother traveled to the third floor and back, carrying trays, nursing her. Then one day, the old mother, weary with service, lay down and died. For some weeks, the invalid languished. Then she got up, put on her clothing, and resumed living again. Some authorities declare that people may actually go insane in order to find in the dreamland of insanity the feeling of importance that has been denied them in this harsh world of reality. There are more patients suffering from mental diseases in the United States than from all other diseases combined. What is the cause of insanity? Nobody can answer such a sweeping question, but we know that certain diseases such as syphilis break down and destroy the brain cells and result in insanity. In fact, about one half of all mental diseases can be attributed to such physical causes as brain lesions, alcohol, toxins, and injuries. 
But the other half, and this is the appalling part of the story, the other half of the people who go insane apparently have nothing organically wrong with their brain cells. In the post-mortem examinations, when their brain tissues are studied under the highest power microscopes, these tissues are found to be apparently just as healthy as yours and mine. Why do these people go insane? I put that question to the head physician of one of our most important psychiatric hospitals. This doctor who has received the highest honors and the most coveted awards for his knowledge of this subject told me frankly that he didn't know why people went insane. Nobody knows for sure, but he did say that many people who go insane find in insanity a feeling of importance that they were unable to achieve in the world of reality. Then he told me this story. I have a patient right now whose marriage proved to be a tragedy. She wanted love, sexual gratification, children, and social prestige. But life blasted all her hopes. Her husband didn't love her. He refused even to eat with her and forced her to serve his meals in his room upstairs. She had no children, no social standing. She went insane, and in her imagination, she divorced her husband and resumed her maiden name. She now believes she has married into English aristocracy, and she insists on being called Lady Smith. And as for children, she imagines now that she has had a new children every night. Each time I call on her, she says, Doctor, I had a baby last night. Life once wrecked all her dreams on the sh dream ships on the sharp rocks of reality. But in the sunny fantasy hours of insanity, all her barking teens race into port with canvas billowing and wind singing through the mass. Tragic? Oh, I don't know. Her physician said to me, if I could stretch out my hands and restore her sanity, I wouldn't do it. She's much happier as she is. If some people are so hungry for a feeling of importance that they actually go insane to get it, imagine what miracle you and I can achieve by giving people honest appreciation this side of insanity. One of the first people in American business to be paid a salary of over a million dollars a year when there was no income tax and the person earning $50 a week was considered well off was Charles Schwab. He had been picked by Andrew Carnegie to become the first president of the newly formed United States Steel Company in 1921. When Schwab was only 38 years old, when he was only 38 years old, Schwab later left U.S. Steel to take over the the then troubled Bethlehem Steel Company, and he rebuilt it into one of the most profitable companies in America. Why did Andrew Carnegie pay a million dollars a year more than $3,000 a day to Charles Schwab? Why? Because Schwab was a genius. No, because he knew more about the manufacture of steel than, any, than, than other people. Nonsense. Charles Schwab told me himself that he had many men working for him who knew more about the manufacturing of steel than he did. Schwab says that he was paid the salary large because of his ability to deal with people. I asked him how he did it. Here's his secret set down in his own words. Words that ought to be cast in internal bronze and hung in every home and school, every shop and office in the land. Words that children ought to memorize instead of wasting their time memorizing the conjugation of Latin verbs or the amount of annual rainfall in Brazil. Words that will all but transform your life and mine if we will only live them. I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm among my people, said Schwab. The greatest asset I possess in a way to develop the, the, the best that is in a person is by appreciation and encouragement. 
I said, I consider my ability to arouse my enthusiasm among my people. The greatest asset I possess and the way to develop the best that is in a person is by appreciation and encouragement. There was nothing else, there was nothing else that so kills the ambitions of a person as criticisms from superiors. I never criticize anyone. I believe in giving a person incentive to work. So I am anxious to praise, but loathe to find fault. If I like anything, I am hearty in my appropriation and lavish in my praise. This is what Swab did. But what do average people do? The exact opposite. If they don't like a thing, they boil out their subordinates. If they do like it, they say nothing. As the old couplet says, once I did bad, and that I heard ever. Twice I did good, but that I heard never. And my wide association in life, meeting with many and great people in various parts of the world, Schwab declared, I have yet to find a person, however great or exalted in his station, who did not do better work and put forth greater effort under the spirit of approval than he would ever do under the spirit of criticism. So he's saying, I never found a person who works better under criticism than approval, you feel me? Praise, encouragement, and approval pushes us to do better than criticism, judgment, and, you know, con condemnation. And that was chapter one. Chapter one was talking about do not criticize, judge, and, you know, condemn people. And chapter two is kind of like piggying back off that and letting you know instead of what not to do is what to do. And what to do is show appreciation, you know, encourage others. And that is how you influence people and win friends. That is how you handle people and get people to do what you want them to do. All right, so um, in my wide association of life, where we at? Okay, that he said, frankly, was one of the outstanding reasons for the phenomenal success of Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie praised his associates publicly as well as privately. Carnegie wanted to praise his assistants even on his tombstone. He wrote an epitaph for himself which read, Here lies one who knew how to get around him, men who were cleverer than himself. Sincere appreciation was one of the secrets of the first John D. Rockefeller success in handling men. For example, when one of his partners, Edward T. Bedford, lost a million dollars for the firm by a bad, by a bad buy in South America, John D. might have criticized but he knew Bedford had done his best and the incident was closed. So Rockefeller found something and praised. He congratulated Bedford because he had been able to save 60% of the money he had invested. That's splendid, said Rockefeller. We don't always do as well as that upstairs. I have among my clippers a story that I know never happened, but illustrates the truth, so I'll repeat it. According to the silly story, a farm woman at the end of a heavy day's work set before her men folks in a heaping pile of hay. And when they indignantly demanded whether she had gone crazy, she replied, Why? How did I know you how did I know you noticed? I've been cooking for you men for the last twenty years and all the time I ain't heard no words to let me know you wasn't just eating hay. When a study was made a few years ago on, on runaway wives, what do you think was discovered to be the main reason wives ran away? It was lack of appreciation. And I bet that a similar study made of runaway husbands will come out the same way. We often take our spouses so much for granted that we never let them know we appreciate them. A member of one of our classes told of a request made by his wife. She and a group of other women in her church were involved in a, a self-improvement program. 
She asked her husband to help her by listing six things he believed she could do to help her become a better wife. He reported to the class, I was surprised by such a request. Frankly, it would have been easy for me to, to, to list six things I would like to change about her. My heavens, she could have listed a thousand things she would like to change about me, but I didn't. I said to her, let me think about it and give you an answer in the morning. The next morning, I got up very early and called the florist and had them send six red roses to my wife with a note, with a note that read, <clears throat> excuse me. The next morning, I got up very early and called the florist and had them send six red roses to my wife with a note saying, I can't think of six things I would like to change about you. I love you the way you are. When I arrived at home that evening, who do you think greeted me at the door? That's right, my wife. She was almost in tears. Needless to say, I was extremely glad I had not criticized her as she had requested. The following Sunday at church, after she had reported the results of her assignment, several women with whom she had been studying came up to me and said, that was the most considerate thing I have ever heard. It was then I realized the power of appreciation. Florence Ziegfeld, the most spectacular producer who ever dazzled Broadway, gained his reputation by his subtle ability to glorify the American girl. Time after time, he took drab little creatures that no one ever looked at twice and transformed them on the stage into glam glamorous visions of mystery and seduction. No one evaluated appreciation and confidence. He made women feel beautiful by the sheer power of his gallantry and consideration. He was practical. He raised the salary of the chorus girls from $30 a week to as high as 175 and he was also chivalrous. On opening night at the Follies, he sent telegrams to the, stairs, to the stars in the cast and he deluged every chorus girl in the show with American Beauty Roses. I once succumbed to the fad of fasting and went for six days and nights without eating. It wasn't difficult. I was less hungry at the end of the sixth day than I was at the end of the second. Yet, I know as you know, people who would think they had committed a crime if they let their families or employees go for six days without food. If they would let them go for six days and six weeks and sometimes 60 years without giving them the hearty appreciation and they crave that they crave almost as much as they crave food. So we would go, you know, like we would think it's crazy to go six days without fasting, but we don't think about how we go six days or 60 days or 60 years without giving people compliments and showing them appreciation and encouraging them, you know? We crave, we all crave compliments. We all crave encouragement. We all crave appreciation. When Alfred Lunt, one of the great actors of his time, played the leading role in Reunion in Vienna, he said, there is nothing I need so much as nourishment for my self-esteem. We nourish the bodies of our children and friends and employees, but how seldom do we nourish their self-esteem? We provide them with roast beef and potatoes to build energy, but we neglect to give them the kind words of appreciation that was sing in their memories for years like the music of the morning stars. Paul Harvey, in one of his radio broadcasts called The Rest of the Story, told how showing sincere appreciation can change a person's life. He reported that years ago, a teacher in Detroit asked Stevie Morris to help her find a mouse that was lost in the classroom. You see, she appreciated the fact that nature had given Stevie a remarkable pair of ears to compensate for his blind eyes.
but this was really the first time Stevie had been shown appreciation for those talented heirs. Now, years later, he says that his act of appreciation developed his gift of hearing and went on to become under the stage name of Stevie Wonder, one of the great pop singers and songwriters of the 70s. So, Stevie Morris became Stevie Wonder because someone appreciated his, 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 his powerful ears, his powerful talent for hearing because, you know, he lacked the, 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 he lacked the ability to see. You know, and out of that one act of appreciation grows confidence, you know. Build someone's confidence, it can snowball. It could be that domino effect of, of becoming a better person, you know. Getting people to do things to, you know, to, to help themselves out. You know, just by one act of appreciation. Some readers are saying right now as they read these lines, Oh, fooly, flattery, bear all you. I've tried that stuff. It doesn't work. Not with intelligent people. Of course, flattery seldom works with discerning people. It is shallow, selfish, and insincere. It ought to fail, and it usually does. True, some people are so hungry, so thirsty for appreciation, they would swallow anything, just as a starving man will eat grass and fishworms. Even Queen Victoria was susceptible to flattery. Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli confessed that he put it on thick in dealing with the Queen. To use his exact words, he said he spread it on with a towel. But Disraeli was one of the most polished, deft, and adroit men who ever ruled the far-flung British Empire. He was a genius in his line. What would work for him wouldn't necessarily work for you and me. In the long run, flattery would do you more harm than good. Flattery is counterfeit, and like counterfeit money, it would eventually get you into trouble if you pass it on to someone else. The difference between appreciation and flattery, that is simple. One is sincere and the other is insincere. One comes from the heart out, the other from the teeth out. One is unselfish, the other selfish. One is universally admired, the other universally condemned. I recently saw a bust of Mexican hero General Alvaro Obregón in the Chalputepec Palace in Mexico City. Below the bust are the carved, are carved these words from the general from General Obregón's philosophy: "Don't be afraid of enemies who attack you. Be afraid of the friends who flatter you." No. I'm not suggesting flattery, far from it. I'm talking about a new way of life. Let me repeat, I'm talking about a new way of life. King George V had a set of six maxims displayed on the walls of his study at Buckingham Palace. One of these maxims said, teach me neither to proffer nor receive cheap praise. That's all flattery is, cheap praise. I once read a definition of flattery that may be worth repeating. Flattery is telling the other person precisely what he thinks about himself. Use what language you will, said Ralph Waldo Emerson. You can never say anything but what you are. If we all had, if we all had to do, if all we had to do was flatter, everybody would catch on and we should all be experts in human relations. When we are not engaged, when we are not engaged in thinking about some definite problem, we usually spend about 95% of our time thinking about ourselves. Now, if we stop thinking about ourselves for a while and begin to think of the other person's good points, we won't have to resort to flattery so cheap and forth that it can be spotted almost before it is out of the mouth. One of the most neglected virtues of our daily existence is appreciation. Somehow we neglect to praise our son or daughter when he or she brings home a good report card. And we fail to encourage our children when they first succeed in baking a cake or building a birdhouse. 
Nothing pleases children more than this kind of parental interest and approval. The next time you enjoy filet mignon at the club, send word to the chef that it was excellently prepared. And when a tired salesperson shows you unusual courtesy, please mention it. Every minister, lecturer, and public speaker knows the discouragement of pouring himself or herself out to an audience and not receiving a single ripple of appreciative comment. What applies to professionals applies doubly to workers in offices, shops and factories, and our families and friends. In our interpersonal relations, we should never forget that all our associates are human beings and hunger for appreciation. In our interpersonal relationships, in our interpersonal relations, we should never forget that all our associates are human beings and hunger and they hunger for appreciation. It is the legal tender that all souls enjoy. Try leaving a friendly tale of little sparks of gratitude on your daily trips. You'll be surprised how they would set small flames of friendship that would, that would be rose beacons on your next visit. Pamela Dunham of New Fairfield, Connecticut, had among her responsibilities on her job the supervision of a janitor who was doing a very poor job. The other employees would jeer at him and litter the hallways to show him what a bad job he was doing. It was so bad, productive time was being lost in the shop. Without success, Pam tried various ways to motivate this person. She noticed that occasionally he did a particularly good job. He did it. She noticed that occasionally he did a particularly good piece of work. She made a point to praise him for it. She made a point to praise him for it in front of the other people. Each day, the job he did all around got better, and pretty soon he started doing all his work efficiently. Now he does an excellent job, and other people give him appreciation and recognition. Honest appreciation got results where criticism and ridicule failed. Hurting people not only does not change them, it is never called for. There's an old saying I have, that I have cut out and pasted on my mirror where I cannot help but see it every day. I shall pass this way but once. Any good, therefore, that I can... I shall pass this way but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness that I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer it nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Emerson said, every man I meet is my superior in some way, in that I learn from him. That was true of Emerson. Isn't it likely to be a thousand times more true of you and me? Let's cease thinking of our accomplishments, our wants. Let's try to figure out the other person's good points. Then forget flattery. Give honest, sincere appreciation. Be hearty in your appropriation and lavish in your praise. And people will cherish your words and treasure them and repeat them over a lifetime. Repeat them years after you have forgotten them word give honest and sincere appreciation that's chapter two um this is something i, I want to start practicing you know giving more people appreciation um the, the funny thing is like you know i started to i started to you know like recently i um went you know went through a breakup um and i didn't feel like you know being angry with my ex and initially I was like initially like I wanted to just tell her so many you know ways that she hurt me and how she's not you know just curse her you know what I'm saying just curse her out you know like initially I wanted to curse her out and what I what I what I what I decided to do instead was write down everything that I appreciate about her in a relationship and I decided to give her praise 
And I did that personally within my journal. And then I sent it to her, you know? And of course I had to remind her, like, I don't want to get back with you, but I don't want to be angry with you, so this is why I'm doing this, you know? And I actually did this before I started reading this book. And then I started reading this book. And in the first chapter, it's like, don't criticize, condemn, and judge people and rebuke people. And then I'm like, whoa, like, this is really in alignment with how I feel and what I want to, you know, do. I want to literally judge people less, you know? And that's something that I noticed, you know, is that I could criticize, you know? Like, I could judge, you feel me? So, like, I realized, like, I don't want to do that, you know? And certain people don't like that, you know? And nobody likes that, as we can see. People don't want to be judged and criticized. People want to be appreciated. This ain't a competition, you know, like, this is, you know, like, if I'm not on stage and this is a competition and I got to get in first, second, and third place, it's not the time for judgment, you feel me? But in, in, in relationships, encouragement and appreciation is it. And I just want to say that, like, that really, 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 really helped, like, writing all of the things that I appreciated about her down helped me, like, deal with it and not have to be angry towards her. I still don't want to get back with her, but it helps me, like, deal with the fact that it's actually over, you feel me? Because breakups, you don't want to accept that when you when you uh, have so much experience with someone and stuff like that. You want to kind of hold that. So, like, this is lit, you feel me? How to win friends and influence people. And I think showing appreciation, you know, is something that, like, you know, is, is very powerful, you feel me? I do realize how I appreciate, you know, and want to spend time with the people who show appreciation for me, you know, the most. You know, the people who show the most appreciation for me in life is the people I gravitate toward, you know. So, appreciation is important, you know. Like, I appreciate you for watching this, you know, and experiencing my growth because that's what you're doing. And, like, you know, sometimes we, you know, every, like, every, like, every, every, you know, every comment matters. And when you comment and say, oh, I appreciated you for reading this, when people do that, like, it, it really, it really encourages me to keep going, you know? It really makes me feel more purposeful, you know? So, I appreciate you guys, you know, for, for witnessing my growth and, and tuning in and getting what you need from this, you know? And I'm hoping that you can get something from the books that I share with you, um, my experience, you know, my journey, just watching me. Um, you know, so I appreciate you for being here with me. Um, and that was chapter two. That was chapter two of uh, How to Run Friends and Influence People. So stay tuned for more. If you don't know, you're about to know right now. You're about to learn education. You feel me, them? I'm Quindell Evans, bluepoetry.com. The word blue, the word poet, the word tree.com. You feel me, them? Let's go.